Will you turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10, 11, and 12. This is the final section of Isaiah 53. And uh, Lord willing, next week I want to begin a series uh, of sermons in the Proverbs, uh, which I'm calling Biblical Principles for Biblical Practice. One of my favorite subjects. Principle, then practice. Doctrine, then life. So, let us uh, turn now to uh, Isaiah 53 verse 10. I want to consider with you this morning the satisfied and the justifying servant. The satisfied and the justifying servant. And as we go through the text, you'll see those themes of satisfaction, which by the way is at the very heart of of a true understanding of the doctrine of atonement. If you want to know what atonement is all about, it is simply about satisfying the justice of God. In the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's justice is satisfied, His wrath is turned away, and we are said to be righteous. We are uh, imputed with righteousness as a result. This is the heart, by the way, of chapter 52, verse 13, through the end of chapter 53. So, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. And may the Lord bless to us the reading of His inspired Word. Let us pray together. Now, our Heavenly Father, as we bow before You, as we find ourselves in Your presence, may we have ears to hear Your Word. May our hearts truly be receptive, softened by Your Spirit, to grasp and understand the glories of Isaiah 53, how precious it ought to be to each one of us. So, Father, we commend ourselves to you now and pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would take the words of Scripture and make them plain to us. And we commit all things to you. Ask that you would work sovereignly in and through your word to speak to us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. You remember that the prophet Isaiah has, from chapter 42 onwards, been developing the theme of the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. And he has particularly and poignantly developed what we now know as the servant songs of Isaiah. And this chapter 52 verse 13 through chapter 53 verse 12 is what we know as the fourth servant song. This is the final song 
that the prophet Isaiah gives to us about the servant whom, throughout the whole passage here, is said to be one who suffers. When we talk about the servant of the Lord, we mean, of course, the Messiah. We mean the one who has been appointed by God to deliver his people. Like a captain or a general who goes out to set free his people by accomplishing whatever it is that needs to be done. So God sends forth his deliverer. He sends forth his servant. He sends forth the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, to accomplish what you and I need so desperately. And what is that? It is redemption, which is the forgiveness of our sins. It is reconciliation, to be at peace with God. These are the themes in the work of the servant, which of course, when we consider the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we believe and confess to be the servant, we see the same things. He redeems His people from all of their sins, and He reconciles us to God, doesn't He, because of His death. These are the major themes of Isaiah 53. At the heart of Isaiah 53 is this great subject, which many Christians are confused about, the subject of atonement. There are so many different theories on the atonement, right? Jesus' death was an example of love, for example. Or the ransom theory atonement that Jesus paid a ransom price to the devil, to Satan, to set us free. When in reality, the price that is paid is paid to God. It is what we owe to God that we cannot pay, that the servant, of course, uh, has paid it. One of the things we've been considering together throughout uh, these verses is that this servant is a unique servant, isn't he? In fact, he is a person. You look at the use of the pronouns, all the pronouns indicate quite simply that the one who is described as a servant, the servant of the Lord, is none other than a person. And he's a unique person. In fact, if you go back to chapter 52 and look at 13, 14, 15, you see that there the the prophet Isaiah speaks of the exaltation of this person, the exaltation of the servant in verse 13, chapter 52. But in the very next verse, verse 14, he talks about the humiliation of the servant. This person who is unique is exalted and then this person on the other hand is brought down to degradation and brought down to humiliation. No wonder you read verse 15 of chapter 52, the response to that difference between exalted one and humiliated one, so much so that kings are startled, and kings shut their mouths, and many cannot grasp the significance of the change that you find between the exaltation and the humiliation of the servant. So this is what the prophet Isaiah has introduced to us to, right, in the servant of Yahweh. He is seen primarily by his sufferings. Here, in this passage, why did he suffer? And what was the result of his sufferings? Or, to put it another way, what is the fruit of redemption? What are the accomplishments of the death of the servant? What are the accomplishments of atonement? Can you imagine paying a ransom price for a kidnapped child to never get the child, to never receive the child? You pay the money, you pay the price, and you never get what the price is supposed to accomplish, the freedom of the child. Can you imagine the horror of such a situation? That's not the case here. Here the the price is paid, and there's fruit, there's reward, 
there's accomplishment. There is, as the prophet so eloquently puts it, there is an offspring, there are seed, there are descendants, there are people who belong to the servant that the servant sacrifices himself for, and then the servant wins them by paying the price. The price ultimately, his own life and his own blood. So what spectacular heights the prophet Isaiah soars to, doesn't he? As he tries to describe this work of a servant in language that is for us to read and to try and comprehend. There's no doubt when we narrow it all down from the prophet Isaiah that the servant is none other than the New Testament reveals to us the person of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth who is not just human but is also divine. Jesus of Nazareth whom the, all the gospel writers and all the epistles declare to be the Son of God. To be the Son of God and at the same time to be the Son of Man. And this is, the, this is what Isaiah the prophet is introducing us to so that it comes as no surprise when we read the Gospels to find that the fulfillment of what Isaiah spoke about is to fulfilled in Jesus himself. And so this is precious to us, isn't it, if we are Christians? This is important to us if we are Christians. There's no doubt then that this ultimately is a fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Simply because... First of all, everything that happens to the servant happened to Jesus. That's the first thing. And secondly, there is no other candidate in all of human history who fulfills the requirements of Isaiah's servant. Innocent, without guilt, blameless, undefiled. All of those things characterize the servant. They all characterized Jesus, the Son of God. So in one sense... The prophet Isaiah gives to you and to me this morning the greatest proof that there possibly could ever be given of who Jesus is. That Jesus in Isaiah 53 is to be seen. Just like Psalm 22 is a description of the crucifixion. Yes, it's a psalm by David and of David, but yet it's a psalm pertinently, precisely speaks of the death of Jesus on the cross. And so too here in Isaiah 53. This is a prophecy by the great prophet about someone who's going to come, who's called the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, who's going to redeem and is going to save and, and all of these things. All prophecies about Jesus made by the prophet Isaiah came to fulfillment and came to have their accomplishment. So Isaiah 53 is a foretelling. It's a prophecy about our Lord Jesus Christ, whom John the Baptist, you remember, described so beautifully as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the servant. This is Jesus. The servant suffers death, not because he deserves death, but because others deserve death and he takes their place. And at the heart of atonement is what we call a vicarious substitutionary atonement, a price that is paid on behalf of others for their release for their deliverance, for their salvation. This is what we have in Isaiah 53. And throughout Isaiah 53, the whole idea of substitution is eloquently put forward. Someone dying in our stead, in our place, for us, on our behalf. I remind you that the introduction is, as I've already mentioned, back in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. But when we come to these verses from verse 1 of chapter 53, 
It's as if the prophet sees the life and then the death and then after the death of the servant. And as he works his way through, for example, in verses 1 and 2, he will describe the youth or the infancy, the growing up of the servant. In verse 3, he describes the maturity of the servant. In verses 4 through 6, particularly the sufferings of the servant. In verses 7 and 8, the trial and the death of the servant and his burial then in verse 9. So you notice how he's making his way through the life and the events of the servant's life. Now, in verses 10 through 12, two things. He points out in verse 10 that there is a resurrection. There is something that happens after death and burial that is seen as a vindication of the servant's work. And secondly, in verse 11 and 12, the fruit of his labors, the accomplishment of his work. What did he gain? What did he accomplish? What did he achieve? And that ultimately is the beautiful, beautiful uh, section when we come to those verses. Isaiah has presented the servant as divine. He has presented the servant as human. He has presented the servant as innocent, as a willing, sinless, voluntary sufferer, as an obedient, humble, silent sufferer. And those descriptions, of course, are fully met, fully satisfied in the New Testament by the Lord Jesus Christ. If ever there is a prophecy like Psalm 22 that should convince anybody of the truth of Christ and the veracity of Scripture, it is what Isaiah has given to us, fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember that Philip the Evangelist had been sent out And he's there in a desert region in Acts chapter 8 and he comes across an Ethiopian eunuch who's traveling on behalf of his queen, the queen of Ethiopia, to do business in Jerusalem. Now he's going home. And he is sitting in his chariot and the Bible says he's reading from the prophet Isaiah and he's reading particularly chapter 53 verses 7 and 8. Particularly like a lamb, slaughtered and so on. And as he reads that, there is, there is confusion, there is doubt upon him, and the Spirit says to Philip the Evangelist, go and join that chariot. And so he goes up there, and the man's reading his scroll, of course, it's a parchment. And he says, do you understand what you are reading? And you remember the, Philip's, the, the Ethiopian's eunuch, you know, how can I? And says, somebody explain it to me. Is the prophet speaking about himself, or is he speaking about somebody else? And the Bible says that Philip got up in the chariot, And beginning with that scripture, he explained to him everything about Jesus. Isaiah 53 is about Jesus and Jesus alone. It's this beautiful, remarkable prophecy. It tells us why the servant did what he did. Why all the terrible things that we've listened to, read through, uh, observed in the passage, the verses before us. Why all of those terrible things happened to him. These verses... Now tell us why. So notice in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me, please. First of all, there are a number of things that stand out here. This is the meaning and the effects of the death of the servant. Notice first of all that the death of the servant is according to divine pleasure. Or to put it another way, it's according to the will of God. The death of the servant is according to God's will. That's the first thing. The second thing is that this death of the servant, which is according to the will of God, is said to be a guilt offering. 
a guilt offering. At the very center of atonement is a guilt payment. The guilt is assuaged. And then, thirdly, in the passage, he talks about, uh, verse 10, he talks about his people. He shall see his offspring, shall prolong his days. And the fruit of that is that he fulfills the will of God. He accomplishes everything God intended for him to accomplish. Now you know if you gave me a big document and you had lots of points in that document about what I was supposed to achieve, let's say in a job for example, and there are maybe let's say a thousand points in there, the the fact that I must try and memorize a thousand points to do to fulfill my job would be simply probably beyond my little brain. I would fail. I might get through 13 and then trouble would hit me, right? And I forget 14 all the way to a thousand. And there's trouble because I'm not accomplishing what was intended, I'm not accomplishing what was necessary and what was needed. What the Father has given to the Son in a point form of accomplishment, Jesus does. Perfectly. And He does it not for Himself, but for us. For on our behalf and to accomplish what God intends it. When I look at verse 10, those things about the divine pleasure and the guilt offering made and His people and the fruit of that being according to the will of God, you could sum that up in just two, two ways, right? Number one, that is about the purpose of God or the pleasure of God. That's the first thing. The death of the servant is the pleasure of God. It's the purpose of God. And number two, the servant gets reward. He's pros- there's a prosperity that's attributed to the servant. He shall see his offspring. And notice that he shall see his offspring is after he makes his soul an atonement for guilt. Or an offering for guilt. So that he dies, but he sees after his death. And this is what the satisfied servant is all about. Here are the facts of why it happened to the servant. And here are the facts, the fruit of what occurred as a result of what happened to the servant. To put it very simply, the death of Jesus is not to be ascribed primarily to wicked men. Not to Pontius Pilate, not to Herod, not to the Roman soldiers, not to the Pharisees or the Jewish leaders, none of that. But the death of the servant, the death of Jesus, is to be ascribed solely and only to God. And nowhere else. In fact, I'd like to show you that. So if you turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost and Peter is preaching. Verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. We should never cease to be amazed at these verses. So Acts 2 verse 22 Peter says this, and just through verse 24, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, There it is. Who delivered up Jesus? It's according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then he says on the level of men, their accountability, he says, you crucified the one who did what he was 
supposed to do according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That man, that one, verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. So when we ultimately come to talk about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not that we should ascribe it uh, solely to wicked men, but we ascribe it to God primarily. That the one who is satisfied here in this passage is not the Pharisees or the wicked men, that they've accomplished their purpose of getting Jesus killed. No, the death of Jesus happens by the plan of God. And it's not just a willy-nilly plan of God, it's the definite plan of God. It's according to the foreknowledge of God. And so, the death of the servant is ascribed to a holy God. It's a definite plan. That does not absolve wicked men, does it? That does not relinquish them or absolve them of their guilt. What Peter is simply saying is that you were not in final control of the situation. Only God is and was. In other words, in the death of Jesus, we must see the sovereignty of God. In the death of Christ, you must see that God was in charge. In the death of the servant, Yahweh is in control. He hands over the servant to death. It's according to his will. It's according to his plan. And you'll notice that in his dying, in his death, Isaiah tells us in verse 10 that he makes... His soul is an offering for guilt, or a guilt offering. You read about the guilt offerings in the opening chapters of Leviticus, right? Along with the sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering, the grain offering, and all of those other offerings. The guilt offering is a very, very central, important offering. Because how can, as Job asked, and Job's friends asked, how can a man be right before God? How can God accept sinful men and women? How can He accept you? Because you're sinful. How can He accept me? Because I'm sinful. Or to put it another way, I'm guilty of crimes against God. I'm guilty of sin. How can God accept that? How can He accept me? How can He accept you? There are no exceptions in the sense we're all guilty. You discover here that the prophet Isaiah says that God makes this servant to be an offering, a guilt offering, to deal with the guilt that you and I cannot deal with, and so on. And so the servant's life is offered up as a sacrifice. You remember how Paul put it in Galatians 3, he was made a curse for us. Galatians 3.13. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? In that passage, he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. Knew no sin. No knowledge of sin, no practice of sin, no inherent sin, no possession of sin, just innocence, blameless perfection, made to be sin. My sins, right? And your sins. We call that the transferring or the imputation of our guilt and our sin to Christ. We call that this exchange, a great exchange, isn't it? This is the transferring of our guilt. This is the assumption of our guilt by the servant, by Christ, on our behalf. And the Bible says here that it pleased God to do that. I'm so glad it pleased God. I'm so glad it pleased God to crush His Son, 
to crush the servant. For my sake, for your sake, right? It pleased God to do that. So, when we think about the pleasure of God, we think about the predestination of God. We think about the purpose of God. We think about the plan of God. It was the predestined purpose for knowledge, the definite plan of God to hand over the servant. Or as Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth handed over. Because only the servant can make propitiation. And here's an interesting aside that predestination is the only answer ultimately for propitiation. Because if it's not in the plan of God, there's no satisfaction for your sins. So that the death of Jesus is definite and foreknown and according to the purpose of God and not just by wicked men who finally got their way. No, they got their way because God had determined that they should be the instruments to accomplish that. And this, by the way, is the fulfilling, the satisfaction of the justice of God, is the satisfaction of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, for God has done what the law could not do, weakened by sinful flesh, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh, the body of Jesus, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And there's the exchange, right? Sends his son, condemns his son who condemns sin in the flesh and his death so that the righteous requirement of a law that you cannot keep is fulfilled in you. Our sins can never be forgiven until we receive Christ, until we latch on to Christ, until we are justified by faith, until we believe the gospel. As Calvin loves to put it, he says, God's sovereign grace is always seen and always shining forth in Jesus. It's always there. And it's predestination then that leads to propitiation. What is propitiation? Propitiation is simply the satisfying of God's justice, God's wrath. God is satisfied by what the servant does. God is satisfied on your behalf because of what Jesus did. He is propitiated. And so it is the servant's death then that saves his people and secures their salvation, and secures their forgiveness, and secures their redemption. You notice verse 10 says, He shall see His offering. He shall prolong His days. He makes atonement, as verse 8 says, for the transgression of my people. You know, the death of the servant is not the end of the servant. No, His death is simply the way to eternal life. Eternal life for the servant, eternal life for the people of the servant or the seed of the servant, or the offspring of the servant, or as Isaiah loves to say, the many, or the transgressors. My people, God says. So everything the servant does is for the people, for you, for me. Everything, everything Jesus did, ever did, ever said, ever worked here on earth was for His people to accomplish their redemption, to bring about their atonement. And notice, He will see them. He will see His offspring. Death won't prevent Him from being with His people. Don't you love that? Death is not the end of the servant. Death is not the end of Jesus. You take Him down from the cross, He's dead, you put Him in the tomb, that's not the end of Jesus, is it? Because on the third day, He rises from the dead and now is exalted and vindicated at the Father's right hand. 
But we must ask the question, these offspring, who are they particularly? Who are these people? Well, they are a particular people. They are his offspring. Not everybody's offspring, but the offspring of the servant, right? A people whom God has given to his son. And it's important that we understand that. So I want to show you this. Will you turn to John's Gospel? John chapter 6. A people whom God has given to His Son, a particular people. John chapter 6 verse 37. John 6 verse 37. So Jesus says in John 6 verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, And he who comes to me I will never cast out. Notice, all that the Father gives me, come to me. And when they come to him, they believe, of course. Verse 39, And this is the will of him, this is the will of the Father, this is the will of God who sent me, that I lose nothing of all that he has given me. So all those given in verse 37 to the Son, the Son says in verse 39 that it's, that it's the will of God that I lose none of them that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, the one who looks on the Son and believes in Him, should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Now look at chapter 10, John. John's Gospel, chapter 10. John continues the theme. Verse 11, the great passage on the Good Shepherd, Jesus the Good Shepherd, John 10 verse 11. I am the Good Shepherd, verse 11, the Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Do you see that? Who does the Good Shepherd lay down his life for? For the sheep. Who are the sheep? They are all that the Father has given to him in John chapter 6. And then look at verse 14. I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own. My own who? My own sheep. And my own, my own sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, that's the Gentiles. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. So this is... These are the people, the sheep. These are the people, the ones that the Father has given to the Son. These are the offspring of Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10. This is a particular people. And notice that there's a prosperity in the end of verse 10 attached to it in Isaiah. That the prosperity, the will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. He shall achieve what He has set out to accomplish. In other words, the servant in his death will accomplish what he intended by his death, namely salvation for his people. So, the prophet continues in verse 11 with the accomplishments of the servant on behalf of the offspring. He says, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. So notice, notice the proportion, how it's stated first of all, right? There is great suffering, anguish of soul. 
There is great satisfaction, accomplishment which he sees. Let me say that again. Great suffering, which is anguish of soul, and great satisfaction, which is the accomplishment of what he sees. So the depths, to, to plumb the depths of the sufferings of Yahweh's servant, to get to the bottom of the depths of his servant, for the servant, as he considers the horrors of what he is about to undergo, they are, they are couched within the framework of the joyful anticipation of accomplishing for his people what he intends to accomplish for them, their salvation. The writer to the Hebrews loves that because he points that out in chapter 12. He says that you and I should look to Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. You notice the writer to the Hebrews says why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus do it? He did it for the joy. He despised the cross, he despised the shame for the sheer joy of seeing his people, of seeing his seed saved. So he anticipates seeing his people by accomplishing their salvation through his death. And it's by the knowledge of him, right, verse 11, by knowing him, by knowing that the righteous servant is who he is, that the many who accept him for what he has done, believe what he has done, are said to be accounted, made, declared righteous. You know, the result of atonement is this provision of justification. To be accounted righteous is not to be infused with righteousness, right? That's a Roman Catholic idea, which leads to then you have an inherent righteousness. You're righteous in and of yourself. That's not what we're talking about here. To be accounted righteous is not to be infused with righteousness, to become inherently righteous, but is to be imputed with righteousness. To be given a righteousness to your account. I say we're not infused for the simple reason is if we are infused with righteousness, that implies that the servant is infused with sin. And that could never be. Because he is sinless. And has no sin. And cannot sin. And did no sin. So we ask ourselves the question, well, what is this justification? That's Job's question, right? How can a man be right before God? What is justification? You can read the catechisms, you can read the confessions. I like the little Westminster Catechism, the Baptist Catechism. Question 36 says this, justification is an act of free God's free grace, in which He does two things. Number one, He pardons us or He forgives us all of our sins. That's forgiveness. That's the first thing. Justification is the free act or the, the, an act of God's free grace whereby He accepts us, secondly, in His sight as righteous. So you notice he, he forgives us and He accepts us. He forgives us our unrighteousness. He accepts us as righteous. Why does He do that? Catechism goes on to say, only because of the righteousness of His Son, the righteousness of Jesus, imputed to us and received by faith alone. And out of that definition comes everything the Reformers and the Reformation preached in the recovery of the Gospel. That justification is by faith only. Sola fide. Nothing added. Not faith plus works. 
but faith alone, justified by faith, as we read from Romans 5 verse 1. So we are justified by faith. By faith in whom? By faith in a substitute. And who's the substitute? The servant. None other than our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that thinking, that theology prompted the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 verse 21 to respond this way, that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. A gift. Justification. A gift by God's grace. Justification is where Jesus makes you right with God. You can't be right by yourself. You have no power. You have no inherent sinlessness. You're guilty. I'm guilty. The only way I can be justified is for a substitute to do something in my place and on my behalf. And Jesus, having done that, what the Father required, according to the plan and purpose of God, the Father, God, accepts on our behalf and applies redemption to us. So, Jesus, the servant, possesses righteousness. We, the sinners, the transgressors, we possess iniquities. You see that at the end of verse 11? He shall bear their iniquities. The many that He makes righteous or accounts righteous, He bears their iniquities. They're not innocent. They're not blameless. They're not guiltless. They're guilty. And he stakes their place. So, here it is. Here's substitution. He bears our iniquities. We receive his righteousness. And that's the only way we're accepted and stand before a holy God. Accepted, as the Bible tells us, in the Beloved, in Christ. Are you... Accepted in the Beloved. Are you in the Beloved? Or are you still in your sins? Far off from Christ, your iniquities rise up like bile in your throat. Can't get away from them. They confront you day and night. And you know them. Is that your condition? Or have you looked away to the cross, to the tree where Jesus died and seen the substitute in your place whom Isaiah says, he shall bear their iniquities. Make the many to be accounted righteous. To see his seed, their iniquities, their sin, their guilt. You see, the wonderful thing about justification or the exchange that is made, is that your iniquities can no longer rise up against you and condemn you. Because Jesus took them. That's the beauty of the cross, isn't it? Jesus took my sins. My sins can't rise up before the Father again and again and condemn me because Jesus took them. He stands now as the, the one who made an offering for my guilt. The guilt of my iniquities has been punished in the death of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, Jesus doesn't die and die and die again. Because in His one single perfect, one time for all time sacrifice for sin, He made atonement. He satisfied the demands of God. God says, from His perspective, well, you have no iniquities. Just, just stop and think about that for a moment. Your iniquities 
are transferred to the servant, transferred to Christ, and God says you don't have any iniquities. In fact, you have His righteousness. His righteousness has now come to you, you go free, and He stands condemned. He dies. He takes your place. That's the substitute. That's substitution. It's willing. He did it willingly because He loved us. Voluntarily. Nobody coerced Him. Who will go for us in the councils of eternity? Here am I. Send me. I'll go and accomplish my people's salvation. The people you've given me, Father. That's what Jesus did. It's as if God says, I don't hold you accountable because I've held my Son accountable in your place. You see, the point of verse 11 is that to be accounted righteous is to be accepted by God. That's the point. If you are accounted righteous, if you are justified, God accepts you. And this requires substitution. Verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. That's what Jesus, the servant, must take. He must take our iniquities. If Jesus didn't take our iniquities, we are not justified. Can never be justified. Praise God, he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. What is Isaiah doing here? Isaiah is giving you and me the application of redemption. The application of redemption. The end of redemption. What Jesus accomplished. What the servant accomplished. Our justification is part of the application of redemption. What is that? God delivers us from our just condemnation. God accepts us as righteous. And God receives us into His family. We are adopted as His children into favor and fellowship with Him. What privileges in justification, in redemption, for all of us? Now listen, justification is not the eternal decree of God. Don't get confused. There is a doctrine about eternal justification. There is, there is no justifying in eternity. We are justified by faith in time. In the purpose of God, and the sovereignty of God, all things be back when God made His decree are all future. And as far as God looks and sees, they're all done and all accomplished. But justification, my justification, is not back there when God made His decree. My justification is at the cross when Jesus died for me and I believed and received Him by faith. So justification is not an eternal decree. It's the fruit of an eternal decree. And justification is not the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It's the fruit of the finished work of Jesus. And justification is not regeneration by the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit, the application of it. Nor is it my response to the gospel. But it's what God has done. You see, justification is an act of God. You remember how Paul put it? Who is there to condemn us? It is God who justifies. Where are your sins? Do you remember how Jesus put it to the woman taken in adultery? Where are your accusers? Where are they? I have none. Then neither do I condemn you. Your sins, they're not rising up before me. No one has condemned you. Go free and sin no more. That's Who is going to condemn us if Jesus took our sins? If Jesus made atonement for me, who's going to rise up and say, no, you're guilty? No, he was made guilty. I stand in Christ, free, forgiven, cleansed. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of what Jesus has done. I think this is what Martin Luther came to understand, right? I mean, Luther is taken up with 
his estrangement from God. I'm far from God. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to please God. I'm trying to draw near to God. I'm trying to understand God. But I'm far from God. God's like a big, angry ogre. I can't get near Him. I'm estranged from Him. And He's trying all these things, works of righteousness, to please God. And still, He's estranged from God. You see, it was only when Luther understood that the righteousness of Jesus, which is an outside righteousness, was actually for him and imputed to him, did he come to see life and light and freedom and to know what it meant to be right with God. And that's simply the righteousness of Jesus credited to my account. That's all it is. That's why we always say that justification is forensic. It's a statement by God. It's a legal declaration by God. It's written by God, externally. Justified, on my account. Justified. Well, what is the consequence of what the servant accomplished? That's verse 12. I mean, look at verse 12. Here is the reward because of the work of the servant. Here is victory. Here is vindication. It is God who rewards the servant. Notice verse 12. Therefore I, that's God, will divide him, that's the servant, a portion with the many, that's the offspring. Notice the work of God. I will divide him a portion with the many, and he, the servant, shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. So notice the reward, the spoils of victory, right? I mean, this is what Isaiah is thinking about. He's thinking about a triumphal procession. You remember how ancient generals always hailed triumphal processions, right? It's like a ticket tape parade down New York. Not quite the same, but you get the idea, right? Everybody turns out, everybody's there to cheer and to praise, and the general comes riding down in his chariot with all of his spoils in chains, slaves, all of what he has brought back to declare his victory. And so he comes riding into the capital of the city, like Rome, for example, and he displays what he has accomplished. That's what Isaiah is thinking of, a triumphal procession. And this is the question then. Well, in what has the servant triumphed? That he can enter into this kind of triumphal procession. Notice, he has triumphed in his death over death. The servant has triumphed in death over death because verse 12 says, because he poured out his soul to death. Why will God divide him a portion with the many and he divide the spoil with the strong? Because he poured out his soul unto death. And God rewards him. Notice the reward. I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shares in the spoils, the servant, Notice what Isaiah says. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. This idea is everywhere in the New Testament, by the way. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, for example, he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. Ephesians 4.8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Think about that. He releases us from bondage to sin, he takes us as captives, as it were, to sin. He releases us and he takes us to glory, as it were, and he gives us gifts. It's not like he just says, 
well, here are the slaves. No, he says, here are my sheep who share in my spoils my reward for having accomplished their redemption. Everything that's mine is now theirs. And in triumphal procession, he leads a host of captives to glory and shares their spoils. Or as Paul says to the Colossians, chapter 2.15, he disarmed rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Or 2 Corinthians 2.14, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the knowledge of him everywhere. So dear brothers and sisters, Here are verses 10, 11, and 12. They're profound, aren't they? Here's the fullest, highest expression of biblical atonement. You want to study atonement in the Bible? You start here. And everything you will find will feed into Isaiah 53. And then you will notice in the end at verse 12, we see the work that the servant did. Number one, yet he bore the sin of many. That's his substitution. That's his sacrifice. But that's not all he did. Look at the end of verse 12. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. Hang on. I thought he died. He did. Well, how does he make intercession for the transgressors if he died? No, he must be alive to make intercession. So he, number one, makes sacrifice for his sin. And number two, he makes intercession for his people. The transgressors. The many. The offspring. This is the work of a high priest, isn't it? This is what you read about in the Old Testament, like Aaron, for example. He has a twofold work. He must slay sacrifice, make sacrifice, make atonement. And then, on behalf of the sacrifice, he must intercede with God. That's exactly what Jesus has done as our high priest. He has made atonement, he has made sacrifice, but... Because he lives in the power of an indestructible, endless life. Hebrews 7 verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to God through him. He saves them to the uttermost. He intercedes for them. He doesn't just abandon his seed. No, he continues his work of ministering before the Father on their behalf. Because we need his intercession. Think of how sinful we are. Think of our sins constantly. We sin against God. We need Christ interceding. On what basis does Jesus intercede? On the basis of his death, his sacrifice for us. There are consequences, you know, to Jesus being your high priest. The writer to the Hebrew says, if that's how you see it, And if that is how you see it, brothers and sisters, this morning, this is what the writer to the Hebrews would tell you. Number one, he would say, since we have such a great high priest, number one, let us hold fast our confession. Don't abandon your faith. Don't give up. Persevere in the faith. Let us hold fast our confession, and secondly, let us draw near to God in confidence. Think about that. Luther can't go to God until he can have confidence to go to God. And that's only through the servant, only through Christ. I have confidence to draw near to the Father in heaven because of the Son. 
And he says, let us draw near to God with confidence. Why should we do that? So that you can receive mercy. Not only that, so that you can obtain help, grace, to help you in time of need. You need mercy and you need grace to survive, to live. That's why Jesus is at the right hand of God. That's why He made atonement and now makes intercession. So that you can hold fast to what you have believed. Not only that, but you can go to God, access to God. Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Okay, We can go to God, and Jesus, on His basis of His intercession, gives us confidence. Because He has made atonement once and for all, and now He intercedes on behalf of us. And we go there for mercy, and we go there for grace, to help us in our time of need. Do you ever have times of need? You ever have times when you cry out to God, help me, Lord? Do you know that you can do that simply because Jesus is at the right hand of God and because He's made atonement? What a beautiful Savior, right? What a total salvation. What a complete salvation. Listen, Jesus does not make our salvation when He dies on the cross possible. He does not make our salvation merely possible as if the application depends on you or depends on me. But no, He secures our redemption and the Holy Spirit applies it in regeneration. Your salvation and my salvation is all of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is the Father who gives to His people a seed, to His Son a people, a seed, an offspring. It is the Son who dies and secures their redemption, and it is the Holy Spirit who applies that accomplished work of salvation to them. And they are justified, regenerated, saved, forever and forever. And in this life, they have a finished work done by their Savior, and an ongoing work, because of that finished work, by intercession at their, on their behalf. Well, in closing, I want to just say one thing. I want to draw your attention to just one little thing. Will you look at verse 10? And see as I read these verses, verse 10, 11, 12, if you can pick out the one thing that stands out in all three verses. Here's verse 10. I'm not reading the whole verse. I'm just reading a portion of the verse. His soul makes an offering for guilt. Verse 10. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied. Verse 12, He poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Did you see the little word? Or two words? His soul. In the Hebrew, in Isaiah, nephesh. In the New Testament, in Greek, psuche, soul. All that he is. Not holding back anything in making substitution, in making atonement, but pouring himself out unto death, his soul. He gave all that he was, and God crushed him. And it pleased God, according to his purpose, to crush and to bruise his son for our sakes. And the result of that is, he justifies the transgressors, makes intercession for them. So beloved, he justifies me, I'm a guilty sinner, he justifies me, I'm condemned. He justifies me, I'm ruined, I'm broken by sin. He saves me, He saves you, His people, by His sacrifice, by His death. That's what Isaiah is saying. This is what the servant has done. And he speaks of it. The servant has done this. The servant has accomplished this, even though Jesus is still to come 700 years in the future. 
And when you get 700 years in the future, read the Gospels. That's exactly what Jesus did. Our redemption. A penal sacrifice, a penal substitution, by penalty, He removes the guilt of my sins, my transgressions. That's how God saves. That's only how God saves. You live in the Old Testament or live in the New Testament. This is only how God saves and justifies someone with someone else standing in their place and for them. That's the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of a substitutionary atonement. You have much to be thankful for. So do I. We should be praising the Lord all the time for thanking Him for His salvation. Because look what He has done for us who were condemned and destined for wrath. He has plucked us as brands burning out of hell itself. What a Savior we have. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we did not do any of these things to accomplish our salvation. But Jesus did them all. And everything we now do, we do through Him, because of Him. And so we want to lift up our hearts and minds this morning in gratitude, in praise, in adoration for the finished work, the death of Jesus as our sacrifice, as our substitute. And that now in His service unto you, He makes intercession for the transgressors. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for your grace and thank you for your mercy and thank you for this glorious gospel of good news that you save sinners by the work of your Son and the accomplishment of what he did. Help us to understand these things and to live and to rejoice in the light of them. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.